So what people don't know that are listening is that I'm not much of a morning person, and it's eight, currently 8.21 in the morning on the East Coast, which is not all that early, but my most productive time of the day generally doesn't start before 10 a.m. But today's guest, Justin Weiss, uh, it is he's on the West Coast, which means it is currently 5.21 in the morning. And I'm wondering, Justin, how much of your product work do you get done before the sun comes up? And I'm not talking... Just because it's dark in Seattle, but like really early morning, is that super productive time for you normally? It is, and I actually didn't expect that when I first started working on this uh, this stuff. But the I it's it's nice doing this again in the morning because it reminds me of the uh, you know the hour or so uh, a couple times a week that I was using to spend um, writing the actual book that I released. Was doing the book part of what helped you set up a morning routine? And then what was that morning routine before you got to work? Um, it did. Um, I I had to find time to do it, and a lot of the times, I mean, I did some uh, some of the writing at night and some of it in the morning. But um, I found that at night, a lot of the time, I would be just uh, I would be too tired. It would be too easy to come up with excuses not to do the writing and everything. So if I said, okay, well, tonight I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go to bed a little bit a little bit earlier, and uh, and then wake up early and start writing, then I actually found that I was able to get stuff done. And you've got kids too, right? Uh, just one with a second on the way. Congratulations. Thanks. Uh, did that factor into your early morning decision as well? Kind of. I mean, it's it hasn't really been too much of an issue because most of the stuff that I do, I do after she goes to sleep. Uh, but in the mornings, it's nice because I can also kind of help my wife out and be up when she wakes up. Nice. So let's take a big step back. Uh, <laughs> introduced you and said you're in, in, uh, in Seattle. Justin, how do you often introduce yourself. And I'm curious, uh, so a couple of different facets of you that, are, that are, are, I think will be interesting to our listeners. The fact that you are uh, both a technical person, also you have a full-time job and you now have a product business on the side. So how do you introduce yourself in particular to non-technical people who maybe don't understand what you do? So for the, uh, you know, for the day job thing, it's usually pretty easy. For the product side, it's, um, I, it's, a writer, maybe, um, like I, you know, I just kind of say, oh yeah, I write, uh, I write for my website. I uh, released a book, like that kind of thing. Do you remember what motivated you to start building products in the first place? I've always needed side projects. I mean, that's always just kind of been a personality trait of mine. Um, I, I had done a little bit of open source work in the past. I, uh, I wrote an iOS app that, uh, you know, a long time ago that was just kind of like one of those scratch your own itch types of things, and. Um, and so I've always needed a project to work on. I just get a little bit restless when I'm not working on something. Had you done, have you, had you tried doing paid products before? Had you tried to launch a product as uh, as a potential business or a side business or was it always just side projects? It's always been side projects. I mean, I, uh, I don't know if it was just that I was, you know, nervous uh, to ask for money or if it was just like, I could easily come up with excuses not to charge like, Oh well, the you know the website that I'm wrapping is free, so my app should be free too, and th those types of things. So, talk to me a little bit about the shift from side project to product. What was the difference for you? Uh, the difference to me is that it's um, when I when I actually have people to follow or instructions to follow or a process to follow, it's a lot easier for me to get through some of those like those mental roadblocks like that. Where um, when I see that other people have had success doing the same thing and charging money for it. It's like, okay, well, I could probably do that too. 
and um, and so that that transition once I actually had you know people from my uh, my thirty by five hundred cohort or um, just other people that I had seen that are doing something similar to me that were um, actually making money from it, uh, it, it became a little bit easier for me to make that transition. Well, you mentioned roadblocks. What were some of those? So uh, just kind of like I mentioned before, the idea that like, oh, well, I shouldn't charge money for this because some reason, which is probably just a, a dumb reason in retrospect. But in, at the time, it's it seemed like, <laughs> um, well, you know, like, why why should I charge money for this? This is like a passion project of mine. So um, I should just release it for free because everybody else should be able to use it the same way that I want to use it. Is that, is that where that came from? Like the I wouldn't pay for this. So why would anybody else? It wasn't even that because a lot of these things I probably would have paid for had they actually existed. So I wonder if you have an idea of like where where did that idea come from? Because what you're describing is especially when we're talking about creative people, people that are that are makers, whether it's you know with a technical skill or design skill or or the ability to write or shoot video or whatever it is. Where does that undervaluing of your project work and and your time where does that come from? Uh, I don't know. Like, I, I kind of want to say that it's fear, but like thinking back, I don't really feel like I was that scared of, of that kind of thing. I think, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, um, I want to say that the, the general idea that I had was, was like, um, I don't want to charge money for this because I had so much fun making it that I just kind of want to share it with the rest of the world. Okay. That's interesting. And the idea that maybe charging for it and turning it into a business puts you on the hook and can somehow suck the fun out of it. Exactly. Like uh, when it's free, if somebody doesn't like it, maybe it's like, well, you like you didn't pay for it, so you got exactly what uh, you, know, you got what you paid for. But um, yeah, I, I mean, maybe it was uh, just kind of worried about the support, which is funny because I've never actually really minded doing much of the support. Interesting. So it was this sort of th- this act of theoretical self-preservation, <laughs> something like that. Cool. So let's talk a little bit about the product that you actually built, which is called Practicing Rails, and it's a book. What is the specific pain that you set out to solve and for whom with Practicing Rails? So as I was uh, going through the the writing uh, for the website and stuff, which kind of came directly out of uh, 35 by 500 work that I did, um, I started to hear a lot, uh, a lot of people getting in touch with me and having problems with the first or usually like the second or third steps of learning Rails, where it's like I got through the tutorial. Um, I know how to build the tutorial apps left and right. But when I actually want to build the app that I got into programming to build, I have no idea where to start. I'm confused by all the um, all the different types of technologies that are out there. I have no idea what to learn next. I, I just like look at this empty skeleton rails app and it's like okay well now what understanding that that's the problem how do you actually fix that problem with practicing rails so that was actually something that was uh i i was able to find just by doing some some research for people uh or some safari online for uh people having similar problems and seeing what the recommendations were Uh, a lot of it just kind of came from my own experience because this was some problems that i was still kind of facing uh, in every once in a while when I started a brand new project and kind of using those ideas to uh, to form a good process that somebody just starting out could follow in order to take the idea that they, you know, they clearly have in their head and turn it into something that they can actually um, hack on. Gotcha. So you just said the magic word in my mind, which is process. And in sort of the in the podcast series that we've been working on, a bunch of the conversations we've been having with 30 by 500 alumni and not 
is taking knowledge that maybe we take for granted because we've learned it and someone else hasn't and turning it into sort of an end-to-end process. And you get to choose the distance between those ends, of course. Um, and the end result of your process was a, was it a fully functioning app or was it something else a little more specific than that? It was a little bit more specific than that, because in my experience, it's like once you get that first feature done, the rest of it just starts to come a lot quicker. It's that, that fear of like not knowing where to, where to start, uh, not knowing what to build first, not even knowing like, okay, well, I have so much stuff in my head and how can I get one little thing down on paper so I can actually start, I, so I actually have something to start working on. So this is really cool. A lot of the conventional wisdom is I want to build my first app or, and, and you took it one, one layer more granular because an app is effectively a collection of features or fixes or actions and, and you put together an end to end process so somebody would be able to create the first feature. The win was not the entire app. It was just one small feature. Right, because once you you know once the app boots up and you start to see something that you actually wrote working in uh, in your browser or uh, on your phone or or whatever, it's that is the thing that sparks that addiction that makes you uh, actually build the rest of the features that then leads to having a final app. And this is, I think, this is a really counterintuitive lesson for a lot of people. How have people responded to the book? You know, do people get to the like they finish that first feature, and is there a, is there a new now what, or is the reaction something else entirely? The reaction I've been getting from people is just that it it seems to remove almost a, a little bit of a mental roadblock where they they were just stuck trying to pull in too much at once, uh, trying to grab too much at once in their brain, trying to do something just absolutely perfect the first time. And uh, it's th- it's funny because the reaction I've been getting is the reaction that I had to some of the books that really had an effect on me where it's like, okay, well, I I think I already kind of knew this, but actually reading it, seeing it, having processes to follow has really allowed me to accomplish this thing that I didn't think that I was going to be able to do. You just mentioned books that influenced you and had an impact on you. What were a couple of those? Um, so one of the biggest ones when I was becoming a developer was The Pragmatic Programmer. And it's it's funny because going back and reading it just a couple months ago, how much of it seems like, like I don't, I want to recommend it, but I don't know that I really can all that much anymore because so it had such a big influence on this generation of programmers that everybody's going to be like, <laughs> yeah, of course, like this is, you know, this is obvious, but even then, uh, the people that I read it with were relatively new developers, and and they all found it, you know, maybe a little bit more obvious, maybe a little bit, uh, they skimmed through it a little bit more than I did when I first read it, but they still got a lot out of it. That's really interesting. So I want to switch gears a little bit to actually creating Practicing Rails, the, the book. How much time per week were you spending, roughly? Because you've got day job, you've got kids, family stuff... Um, and you said most of your work was going in the morning in an hour or so, if I remember right. So mm-hmm. how much time per week are, are you actually putting into creating, marketing, sort of the whole thing? So I, yeah, I spent a little bit of time every day. It's kind of hard to tell because uh, it's, you know, it, it varied a lot. Uh, but the, it was usually about um, an hour or two a day uh, for the actual writing of the book. Uh, that was usually about three or four days a week. And then about uh, anywhere between two and four, uh, which would usually be split between the evening and the morning for writing blog posts and uh, email newsletters and, and doing all that other uh, kind of stuff. 
that's actually was my next question is how do you how did you prioritize marketing and creating the product? How did you uh, so it sounds like you separated them into sort of two discrete steps or uh, or sort of like areas of work. What was the division of work? How did that actually sort out in your head and in practice? So I, I don't remember exactly how it started, but I, I got into a routine of shipping a new blog post every Tuesday, uh, every Tuesday morning. And so once I had that, and then I started uh, doing something similar to the newsletter uh, subscribers and doing a, a, an email newsletter every Friday morning. Uh, once I did that, those were kind of sacred, like no matter what, those were going to go out. And so that kind of helped me balance those two, the marketing and the actual developing of the product, because uh, I was able to have the, I was able to know exactly what I was going to be doing any particular day. If it was Monday or sometimes like Sunday night, uh, I would be writing a blog post. If it was uh, Thursday evening, Friday morning, I would be writing an email newsletter. If it was the rest of the days, I would probably be working on the book. So um, that helped me keep a balance and also keep from letting the book overpower the marketing that I had to do in order to actually make sales of the book. Smart. And this is sort of the power of, of having that routine and not letting, not leaving it up to your intellectual effort at 5.15 in the morning to say, what am I going to work on now, knowing before you even sit down to work exactly what you're going to be working on? Oh, yeah. And I mean, that was that was huge, was having just a concrete next step every single time I sat down at the computer. You mentioned the, the weekly time for for the newsletter and blog post writing in particular being sort of sacred. Did you ever miss a day? Um, I came close a couple times, but usually I could find a way to uh, like to do something. So uh, there were a couple times where I took things that I had sent to the newsletter and converted them into blog posts, which is something that I... Uh, I always wanted to do, but like never really had the motivation to do it when I could actually just, oh, I could write a new post instead and save these things in reserve. Um, and there were other times where it was like, you know, I, I ended up having to ship at, uh, you know, in the evening on a Tuesday or a Friday instead of in the morning. And, um, you know, nobody, it turns out that nobody cares uh, about, <laughs> you know, about something coming in a little bit late or um, some, you know, it's. I, I had actually heard from people that had the consistent schedule for their posting and stuff, and it's like thought they'd be angry or thought their readers would be angry if they didn't release in a week. And it's like, no, they're not angry. They're just worried about you. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, people are like, hey, is everything all right? Exactly. So what was the – of all of the things that you've talked about so far, so, you, so the – uh, choosing the pain to set out, figuring out how to solve it, prioritizing marketing time, content writing for the book and for blog posts. What's been the hardest part of all of this process so far? The hardest part for me has been trying to write something that's specific enough that it actually solves a particular problem that I've been seeing without trying to say, okay, well, there is this other problem that's kind of related to it. And there's this other problem that's kind of related to it. And there's this other one that's kind of related to it. And either turning it into a just absolute monster of a blog post or something, or on the other hand, uh, trying to make the answer so generic that it doesn't actually help anybody. Uh, in the summary that you had posted to the Forge, the the alumni group, you had said that you wrote the first seven thousand words of the book two separate times and scrapped it both before sticking the landing, so to speak. Was that related to what you just described in terms of things going off the rails, no pun intended, um, or was it something else entirely that that was taking things to a, a different place? 
Uh, no, it was absolutely that. Uh, it's actually funny because I just listened to the last Stack in the Bricks podcast where Amy was talking about how it takes a certain amount of uh, of doing Safari until things start to click. And that was totally the case for me. Uh, the first 7,000 words, second 7,000 words, those I wrote really, really quickly after um, after starting to hear back from readers and things. And I just didn't have enough information about what their problems were, what they needed uh, in order to to build the right product for them. And so the I, I just remember the reaction I had after the first 7,000 words, and I said, this is exactly like every single other tutorial out there except worse. And that's not something that I wanted to do. And so instead, I found uh, as, I, as I was doing those, I you know, kept on writing blog posts. I kept on writing email newsletters. I kept on hearing back from readers and, um, and hearing exactly where their, where their problems were. And it turned out that a lot of the problems that they were running into just weren't related at all to the problems that a lot of the tutorials were, were facing. It was more around, like, how do I actually come up with things on my own? Um, how do I figure out what to learn? How do I actually make this stuff stick? And when you're just when you're following a tutorial, which is great for getting that initial um, contact with Rails, uh, that that makes a lot of sense. But uh, once you actually start trying to build your own apps, you need some a little bit of a different kind of help. Um, you need a little bit of a different kind of direction. And so I didn't realize that until I got to about that um, maybe three or four month of or third or fourth month of doing this, and uh, and that made a huge difference and made it a whole lot easier to actually finish. We talked a bunch about the amount of time that you were spending on actually creating the book, and you just said the three to four month mark. Uh, that's of doing Safari. Yeah, that's uh, it's everything. It's doing Safari, writing blog posts, um, chatting with people on my list, uh, just kind of you know getting to know the people that actually like to read the stuff that I like to write. How long was it after you started Safari before you were shipping blog posts and having that kind of interaction, that feedback loop that was giving you more data about your audience? So I actually, I right before I took the boot camp um, was when Amy wrote her guide to, um, I forget what it, exactly what it was, the like four-part guide maybe. Um, it was a blog post. And uh, I mean, our four-part guide on building your first product. And she had a, a thing about like, okay, well, here's what you should do. And then you should write a blog post and then you should do it again next week. And you should do it again next week. And you should do it again next week. And so that kind of triggered the whole idea in my mind that I should actually start trying to do this again. Um, that was also right around the time of the January boot camp, which is the one that I took. As part of the boot camp extended program, there was also some stuff around shipping blog posts. So that just kind of got it in my head that like, I don't need to do a whole lot of research before I can start shipping small little blog posts. Um, those just really have to answer one specific question from one specific person, because if somebody is curious enough to ask about it online or it's they're having such a problem that they're willing to ask about it, then probably they're not the only one running into that. Um, that was totally the case with me. So the blog posts kind of came simultaneously with a lot of the Safari research. And obviously, the more I did, the closer they were able to become to the problems that people were actually facing. Right, right. So uh, very quickly able to start shipping things for your audience, building your list. What were you able to build your list up to before launch? Do you remember? Um, so before the actual launch, which was in February, uh, I was able to get the list up to about uh, 1,970 subscribers. You started from zero, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, I started from zero and it took me, I think, about uh, maybe three or four weeks to get to that first uh, like 50 or so. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. And it, it grows from there. It's one of those things sort of like a snowball rolling downhill. The more you do it, the more it grows, the faster it grows and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, especially because, you know, you start to see the as, as you start creating more of a body of content, you start to see more SEO traffic, you start to see, like your baseline starts going up a little bit more. And I've, you know, it's, there's one thing to get huge influxes of traffic from your stuff being posted to Reddit and all that kind of stuff. But I found that it seems to be the people that find, that land on your stuff from Google and then find that it solves their specific problem that end up becoming email subscribers. All right, so this is a perfect transition. I want to talk about your e-bombs because I point to your e-bombs as an example of of excellence, truly. And I, I mean that. You hit every mark. They're crispy, specific. They're very specific. They're helpful. They're actionable. Uh, your personality shines through. Uh, all These are all things that are, they're not hard to do, but they're not easy to do all of them well and consistently. And I think that's the thing that impresses me the most about your e-bombs is your consistency. So I'm curious if you can share any of the specific steps that you've created for yourself that you follow when you create your e-bombs. Do you have a checklist? Do you have a process that you go through? Tips for people about what works really well and what doesn't to consistently create the kind of excellent e-bombs that you do. One thing that you'll probably start to realize as you uh, as you read through a bunch of them is that there's there's almost a little bit of a formula that I have there. And I didn't do that for any specific reason. I did that because, uh, I mean, I, for any specific like writing reason, I did that because otherwise it would be like, I would never be able to write these things. Um, if I had to come up with like a structure and the content and the examples and the, you know, the actual problem that they're trying to solve all at the same time, it would just take me forever to get these things done. And so I usually kind of start from a, a problem statement, which comes directly from Safari. Uh, that's usually like a question that somebody has or some sort of crazy problem they've run into. And a lot of the times I can, I can, uh, I, I can get the details from, uh, from Safari and then uh, tweak them a little bit to become either a little bit like stronger or a little bit uh, more specific or relate them to something that I've actually faced um, when I've run into this, those same set types of problems. And then from there, it's uh, I go into the actual um, explanation of the solution. And so for those, the actual solution pretty like pretty heavily outweighs the statement of the problem. Usually, the problem is only like a couple sentences, and then the solution is you know a rest of the nine hundred to a thousand word blog post. Uh, and then usually at the end, I do kind of like a wrap up, and then um, some sort of like where where would you try this, or either like a question or something to get them thinking about it or trying them in their own uh, in their own apps. Because like one of the things I talk about in the book is how important it is to try something as soon as you learn it, because otherwise it's just never going to stick with you. Um, in terms of the actual like process I go through, a lot of the, I'll usually start with an outline because that makes it pretty obvious what's on that main path from the problem statement and what's just kind of like, okay, well, I wanted to talk about this and I also kind of wanted to talk about this. And uh, by doing an outline first, it keeps me on one straight path and it also makes it a lot easier for me not to go like, or not to waste a lot of time writing words that I know I'm eventually going to cut from the final thing. Has anyone ever called you out on your magic formula like justin all these blog posts are the same never um yeah it's uh <laughs> i mean i'm sure that people realize it but uh it's like it's simple enough i mean it, i think it's common enough that it just become or that people have seen that kind of thing before and so it's just kind of like oh well this is a blog post that you know solves this problem i don't know have you heard from someone who says you know i just found your website and the next thing i did was basically read everything you've ever written yeah, totally. Um, it's it's really funny because I I hear the or like I, I hear about the okay. Well, I landed on one post, and it's all it's always one post that I wrote. Um, 
uh like there's there's one or two or three that like are really 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 popular or more so than everything else but those lead them to the ones that actually solve more of their specific problems and um and then they read a couple of those and then they start reading more and more and more and then all of a sudden it's like okay well uh i just signed up for your newsletter and i read all of your posts and i love them and they help me you know solve all of these problems and uh the one thing that i keep on hearing over and over again is it's like um this is a problem that I thought I was the only one having. And how did you know to write something about this? Like, well, you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, oh, is there any common theme across those most popular posts? Um, I, I've been looking for one and I haven't really been able to figure it out. Uh, there's, yeah, uh, by far the most popular one is one about uh, searching and filtering Rails models without having to use like a dependency or without having to install a dependency like Solar or um, Elasticsearch or any of those types of things. Just like doing some really, really simple filtering. And I'm not sure, I mean, that was one of the first ones I wrote, which means that it's it, it's been around for a long time. So it's just got a whole lot of aggregate traffic. But even taking that into account, it's still like way beyond uh, the rest of them. And the other ones are focused on like new stuff in Rails, which um, I, you know, it's nice to write about every once in a while, but I, I worry too much about those being a little bit of like candy posts where it's like, hey, it's fun to read, but you don't actually get anything out of it. Uh, so I, I try to at least have something in there that they can really take out of it to put in their own apps. You said that up to launch, you had shipped, uh, I'm sorry, you had gotten a little less than 2,000 people on your, your mailing list, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, launch day was... How long after you started? Um, so I actually did two launches. Um, I did one in October, and that was when I had about 900 people on the list, and that was for the pre-release of the book. Um, that was the first time I had opened up pre-sales. I was really uncomfortable with opening up pre-sales without actually having a product I could give them on day one, which is yet another thing that I probably didn't actually need to worry about. But th uh, that was, so October, uh, I started writing what became that draft of the book in June. So uh, however long that is. Uh, and I took breaks here and there from, from writing because, you know, it, it, I would just, if I did, kept on doing it from the beginning all the way to the end, I would just get burned out. So, and it, it became a better product for me letting it sit for a couple of weeks and then coming back to it, uh, especially when I was doing revisions and, uh, and drafts and stuff. And so that was actually the second draft of the book that I, um, uh, that I released for the presale. After that, I shipped updates about, um, every three weeks or so. Uh, the first beta book was um, PDF only, and then the first update I did was almost entirely spent just trying to get it working in uh, EPUB and Mobi. But <laughs> um, then after that, it was mostly it was doing a whole a couple more full passes through the book, getting better examples, getting better screenshots, like all that kind of stuff, and then uh, actually shipping it. Do you have sales figures from from your launches that you're willing to share with us? I do. Um, so for the initial launch. Um, I got, I sold about, uh, let's see. So that I made 2,500 the first day, uh, which is not that big considering like a lot of the other launches I thought, but, um, that actually stuck for a long, like that number stuck for a couple days. Um, uh, and by the time I did my, by the time I did my actual formal launch, I had made about, um, uh, 12,500 in presales, uh, so then I came to the final launch, and that I uh, that ended up going a lot better. I think mostly because there was a little bit of urgency for the discount expiring, uh, and so for that I made uh, fifty five hundred uh, with one hundred and eighty copies sold, and it also drove a lot more subscribers to my list. Those were th those numbers were 
uh, are contained to a particular day, a range of days? Um, so I'm considering that in uh, about like maybe 72 hours around launch, that kind of thing. Okay. Where did most of your sales come from? Uh, almost entirely from my list and from people that had been recommended it by people on my list. I mean, I didn't get picked up by Hacker News. I didn't get picked up by Product Hunt. Uh, didn't really get a whole lot of uh, success on, on Reddit or anything like that. But um, I had about a 15% 15 uh, of the people on my list ended up buying the book in the month of January. Uh, and or, I mean, since January 1st, so January and February. And uh, yeah, it's uh, and that's pretty much where I uh, drove most of the interest. That's awesome. And so total revenue to date on your first product. Um, I should be breaking uh, 20000 real soon now. Congratulations. That's Thank you. awesome. Uh, yeah, Amy and I are super excited for you. Really, really proud. Thanks. There's a little technique that I'd love for you to share related to your sample chapter uh, that I know worked really, really well for you. Mm -hmm. um, talk to me about how you, where the sample chapter fits into your marketing, your landing page, and how you used it to drive more sales. Yeah, so um, I, I remember hearing somebody talk about this on a podcast, and I wish I could remember who it was, but uh, somebody had recommended at the end of whatever sample that you release to your subscribers, uh, putting the thing that you know Amazon does with their Kindle books, where it's like, you know, if you want to read the full book, then click here and buy it. So I did something similar to that in my sample chapter, and just had a like, you know, want the full version, click here and uh, you know, and buy it, and it takes you to the landing page where you can then buy the full copy of the book. And so that ended up doing really well for me uh, because it's, it's just easy. Like you get to the end of the book and you click it and you can get the full version. Uh, but I, I kind of knew it could be better, especially after talking to a lot of the people in the Forge and uh, calls to action and um, just kind of like showing people what they would get on the other side of that. Because like you like the book, well, get the full one is, is good, but it's not like it, it doesn't actually tell you anything about why you should do that. And so uh, I ended up expanding that to almost a full page of just kind of like a, here's what the rest of the book is about. Here's what the other, uh, the other chapters in the book will teach you. And uh, here's the kind of like what you will be able to do when you're done. And that, and that improved that quite a bit. Do you have any numbers for like what, the, what actually drove that? Um, I wish I did. Uh, one of the problems that I've had with tracking some of this stuff is that uh, the pop-up that I'm using to actually sell the book on the uh, on my book sales page, the Gumroad one, um, isn't keeping track of things like the Google Analytics campaign tags. So um, I, I haven't really been able to tell accurate numbers for it. Um, but yeah, it's so that's been a little bit rough. That's okay. The the confession that I always like to share, and I know Amy does too, is um, we never look at. I don't think we're tracking any of that stuff. We never look at it anyway. It's one of those things that often leads to sort of unnecessary optimization. It takes your eye off of your audience because you're looking at numbers. So I was just curious if you had an idea. There was a surprising number, but you do know that it was it was definitely driving a good number of sales. Yeah, I do. Uh, I do see those uh, coming through in Google Analytics all the time. Awesome. Successful pre-launch launch. You shipped it. You got over all the mental roadblocks. $20,000. Really awesome. Looking back, what's one thing that you would do differently? I would have thought a lot smaller. Um, it's a, a book I, everybody told me, and of course I didn't listen, uh, that a like if you start with a book, it's, it's going to take over your whole life. Uh, and I had a little bit of that. The uh, there were a lot of things that I had heard of other people doing as their as their first product that 
um, were a lot smaller and probably would have done just as well for me and just as well for my readers. Um, I know like uh, Pat Maddox had his uh, had like in a paid email list that he was playing around with that, you know, it's like, hey, I, I could have launched that in a day instead of spending five months writing this thing. Uh, and, and it could have led to a book eventually, but uh, it didn't need to start there. So uh, that, that was one big thing. The other one was that I when I first started writing the book, I wasn't very or coming up with the ideas for the book. Um, I wasn't very good at coming up with a like or at figuring out what the core problems that people were facing were. Uh, that led to those wasted words. That led to um, a you know a you know a pitch page that was kind of meandering a little bit. That was like okay, well here's a problem, and here's another problem, and here's another problem, and here's another problem, and this thing that I'm going to come up with is going to solve all of these things. And that kind of uh, that locked me into a direction that I might not have taken if I had um, started from scratch. It worked out fine. I mean, I'm I'm very happy with the way that the book turned out, and I'm very happy with the and I'm very happy seeing how it's helped people out. But it made the it made the book a lot harder to write than it really had to be. So the two specific things I'm hearing there is, even though it seemed like there was a handful of pains that were all related, um, there were they were still too spread out, and you would have done better by just zeroing in on one, locking in, and doing everything you can to to to. Uh, help soothe that pain. And then the other thing is, uh, and we talk about this in the class is there's many, many, many different ways to kill the same pain, even for the same audience, uh, and getting locked into a single format, whether, you know, it's a book or a course, those are just some of the options. And you can really look at not, you know, not just what are you, it's sort of the intersection of what solves the pain, what do they buy, and what are you able to create with the most reasonable, because least isn't necessarily always the goal, but the most reasonable amount of time and effort. So the intersection of those those three circles is sort of, that's the sweet spot. And you could have bullseyed that just a little bit more. Yeah, definitely. Uh, there was one point after I had thrown away the second batch of words where I just kind of got fed up a little bit and set the set this book aside and said, okay, well, if I was going to come up with a different type of product, then what would it look like? And so... I went through the whole process from uh, from 35 by 500 again. I safari an audience under a different topic that popped up during the uh, during the um, like keywords and themes overview that I did, uh, and ended up writing like a little bit of a sample pitch page for that. And that was really nice because even though that product I haven't actually like started on, it helped me focus on okay, well maybe I can actually just pick one area to make the primary focus of the book. And that's what uh, also helped me realign practicing rails to what it is today. That's a really awesome tip for sort of doing that mental reboot of letting go. It sounds like, cause you had, you had to go through that a couple of times. It was like, I've sunk a bunch of energy and effort into these words, but they're not working. And sometimes you need to give yourself that little win, even, you know, without the intention of creating the product, you set out to ship the pitch page that was more consistent with the Safari research. You did it. You knew what that felt like. You're like, okay, I'm capable of doing this. So now I know that I can go back at the work clear headed. Exactly. And it was, it was nice for me because I was able to go back to a lot of the material that I had in the first place and just realize how much I missed the first time through. And it's uh, the the boot camp is definitely a high high intensity and um, even like at at that point a lot of the time I feel like I, I wasn't ready to uh, I, I wasn't ready to just like zero in on some of the things that were actually really important 
Uh, I would either say, okay, well, I kind of know how to do this. So I'm just going to like concentrate on this part that I don't know how to do already. Or, um, I'm going to, uh, like I'm going to focus on the part that's interesting and maybe like not so much the part that isn't. And going back and looking at that, it's one of those knowing what I know now, um, some of the stuff that I skimmed over the first time, I realized how important it was. And some of the stuff that I actually focused on, I realized how unimportant maybe some of that stuff was. Has there been anything that's really surprised you along the way at any step from beginning to end before launch, after launch? What's been, uh, if anything, a big surprise for you? Um, the biggest thing is just that there are people that I've, you know, people that I've admired for years and people that I've never met before, but all kinds of people that actually want to hear what I have to say. And of course, that's because I'm I'm helping to solve their problems. But uh, it still blows me away that there's like there's so many people who are just eager to see or eager to read what I have next that are uh, eager to help like see me succeed, help me succeed, and just kind of uh, become a part of uh, almost a community just of uh, of people that are going through a lot of these same experiences. That's awesome. Looking forward, because you're continuing to work on selling the book. Are you working on another product yet? Uh, not yet. I'm still kind of taking a break from all that. So what's one thing that you currently struggle with but are trying to get better at? The biggest thing to me is that I still I still tend to see patterns everywhere, uh, especially where they don't actually exist. And so mm. a lot of the time I will... Uh, when I'm doing research, I will take things that aren't really related and try to find a way to relate them. And the it, it seems like the more unrelated two pains are, the harder it is to find a like a common ground that's actually helpful to people. You start to say super generic stuff, and uh, you uh, you start to make up things sometimes because you can't find like that middle ground between these two these two people. So it's like, oh well, when I have kind of felt like this person and kind of felt like this person, this is what I had. And it's like, that's, that's not really the way to do it. And, um, luckily I have people that can actually call me out on that kind of thing. Now, uh, that helps out a lot, but that's still something I need to get a lot better at is just not summarizing, but more just figuring out what the core problem is. Having a product for sale. This is the big shift that we started this conversation with from side project, big part of your life. Now you've got a product for sale. How has that impacted your your life, your work, what's changed now that you've sold a product? I realized that a lot of those mental roadblocks just don't exist anymore. Um, a lot of the things that I was worried about, actually pretty much everything that I was worried about never actually came to pass. And so having that, uh, like, having that realization has helped me become maybe a little bit bolder in what I try, a little bit uh, more, uh, it's like, it just has has opened up a lot of doors in terms of uh, what I what I think I'm capable of. Um, and for the actual process going through the, like going through the process that actually led to a book has been amazing because it's also made me listen a lot more. Um, I start to hear problems a lot earlier than they uh, than they have been. I start to uh, whenever I'm trying to write something, I start from that problem and. And then go through the process to try to figure out, okay, well, what's the what's the a way that we can fix this that actually solves the problem and isn't just what I want to build? Um, that's been everywhere. It's been, um, you know, writing job descriptions. It's been, uh, you know, like uh, helping people out when they're they don't know how to um, really enumerate their own problem and and just kind of like, okay, well, I, asking the right questions that aren't like, okay, well, what's your problem? But like, try to zero in on that by f asking them to describe more about how they're feeling. Uh, what that's leading to, uh, those types of things. That's such a great answer. 
All right, we're going to wrap up for the day. And the last question is one of my favorites. Who is the first person that comes to mind when you hear the word successful? I got to think about this for a second. That's okay. That's the that's the normal amount of pause. <laughs> All right. So, uh, there's a guy that um, that's pretty big in the Ruby community that I've always kind of idolized. And it's been awesome because uh, he actually now follows some of my stuff. And I've actually had a chance to, sit, uh, to talk to him over Skype and that kind of thing. Uh, but Avdi Grimm... Uh, he has uh, he's written a few fantastic books on Ruby, including the first one that I recommend to um, to like to advanced developers coming in who just want to really um, level up their stuff. And uh, he does a um, a twice weekly screencast series uh, that I, I actually got to guest on, which was uh, pretty awesome. Uh, but with like he he now has a way to let his um, to let his product business. Uh, give him the lifestyle that he wants, which is, you know, a, a great family life where he doesn't have to really answer to, um, you know, answer to a boss or like a, a workplace or any of that kind of stuff. Like he gets to actually build stuff and people buy it from him and that's, and then he gets to do whatever he wants the rest of the time. And so, um, that to me is, is kind of where, where I want to be at some point, uh, sometime in the future is where I can let the product business just kind of supply me the kind of lifestyle that I want. Which isn't a fancy lifestyle. It's just a, you know, the kind of uh, opportunities to pursue whatever I feel like pursuing. That's perfect. This has been so much fun. Absolutely worth me getting up to be on a call with you at 8.15 in the morning. I hope it was worth it for you getting up so early as well. Yeah, definitely. How can people follow you, find out about what you're working on, uh, read your e-bomb, study your technique, buy your book if they're into it? Where do people find you, Justin? Uh, so the easiest thing is just justinweiss.com, uh, W-E-I-S-S. Uh, that's where I do all of my writing right now. Uh, and then the other, I'm only really active on Twitter other than that. Um, and that's just uh, at Justin Weiss. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Congratulations. Uh, and thank you so much for sharing with the Stacking the Bricks audience. This has been amazing. All right. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Justin. Take care. <laughs>